gospel this morning comes from St. Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, and can be found on page 1626 in your pew Bible. Luke records, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And he replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, mustard seed you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything that you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done which was our duty. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be upon you. Amen. As we come to today's gospel, we have just finished a series of stories that, that Jesus told to illustrate his teachings. There was the uh, trio, the grand trio of the lost and the found, lost and found parables. You'll remember the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. 
And then there was the following week, the story of the dishonest steward, the crook who was shrewd. And then just last week, we heard the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, Jesus was teaching the crowds. They were listening in with these stories, but he was also showing his apostles how they would also teach someday. And although the apostles were not ready to proclaim his teachings, Jesus knew that the day would come to send them into all nations to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. He would pour out the Holy Spirit on them, and they would proclaim his teachings. And his gospel, in his gospel this morning, Jesus had a warning for the disciples and all all people who teach in his name. The warning was this. He said to his disciples and to those like me standing before you, this warning, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Luke 17, verses 1 through 2. And with these words, Jesus warns. He warns the disciples to teach carefully. As the word of God spread, it would bring both old and young into the church. And the Holy Spirit can work faith in anyone at any age. Thus the little ones in the faith might be young in years, or they may have lived many decades before conversion. In either case, their faith is young, and their faith is tender, it's fragile, and it's easily bruised. And the devil... And the world and their own sinful nature will fight to take them back into unbelief. And what a tragedy it would be if even the leaders of the church taught in a way that harmed their faith. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of causing one of these little ones to sin. And there are innumerable ways to cause hearts to stumble. But these ways, they generally fall into into two categories. One category of false teaching increases false guilt and false despair. One category of false teaching increases false guilt and causes despair. The other category decreases the strength of the law, and so it gives a false sense of confidence. 
Both of these categories teach that keeping the law in some way contributes to salvation, and we know that that is false. Keeping the law in some way contributes to salvation. We know that is false. Now, examples of weakening the law abound in this world. Well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, I'll just tell you. The world justifies murder when it teaches that a baby can be an inconvenience and it is okay to murder it before it is born in order to avoid that inconvenience. It's as if in the garden when Satan said, did God really say you can't eat of this tree? It's another form of saying, did God really say you can't murder babies in the womb? And the answer is yes. He said you cannot do that. It's murder. The world now teaches that intimate physical contact between two people is simply a form of recreational activity. If two people want to live together, to be together for a while, well, a marriage license is just a piece of paper, right? Now, people who live in this culture of weakened morality, they think that they are pretty good, pretty decent, and upright people who really have no need for a Savior. They think this because false teachers have lied about the severity of the law. And sadly, we have many in the church, progressive Christian churches. We have some of those in the Lutheran church, through the ELCA, for example, who go along with the world's lies. They rationalize that the teachings of Jesus were for the people in the first century, and that somehow we now live in more modern times, and somehow we are more wise and more sophisticated. And the lie that continues to go on is that those who wish to get along in the world's lies even suggest, they even suggest this, that if Jesus were to make his presence known today, he would agree with the morality of the times. They teach this to their congregations, and so they cause many to stumble into pagan unbelief. These are the ones that are described. These are the ones who cause the little ones to stumble into sin by nullifying the law. And these pastors and these congregations need to repent now. Those of us who are 
more faithful in our respect for God's law certainly disagree with this kind of thinking. We have a healthy respect for the law of God. The Bible, we believe, is God's Word. And therefore, the law that we find in the Bible is God's law. Amen? And the problem that we in the conservative church have is that we are sometimes so interested in getting the law just right that we forget to tell people about Jesus. We get the law right and we teach it as powerfully as we can, but then we forget to teach the comforting words of forgiveness. In this way, we lay a burden of guilt on people without showing them how God has removed that guilt through Jesus Christ. The rebellious soul, the one that is feeling pinged by the law, he's feeling tormented from the pulpit, that rebellious soul will rightly accuse us of being hypocrites and Pharisees and ignore our message. Now, on the other hand, the tender soul will collapse into despair under the burden of guilt. In either case, we have still caused them to stumble into sin by proclaiming the sternness of the law without giving the hope of the gospel. We have still earned a millstone for our necks. Without Jesus, without Jesus, there are two approaches to salvation. Either we delude ourselves into thinking we have kept the law, or we recognize our lost and sinful condition, and then we collapse into despair and give up. Now, with Jesus, there is another way. The way that Jesus described in the next couple of verses, Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 17, 3 through 4, he said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, then rebuke him. And if he repents, then forgive him. And if he sins against you seven more times in the day, and he turns to you seven more times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now here Jesus teaches the proper balance between law and gospel. And when we notice that our brother has sinned, we approach him in love and we help him to deal with the sin. And then, when he repents, we forgive. Jesus even instructs us to do this seven times a day if need be. The number seven in this context is a number symbolizing completeness. In this context, though, 
It does not mean that when we count seven sins in a day that we stop forgiving, right? Instead, it teaches us that we are to forgive completely. That is, we never stop forgiving the repentant sinner. And even when we withhold forgiveness because a sinner refuses to repent, we do so in the hope that the sinner will repent and receive forgiveness. In this process of forgiving others, we follow the example of Paul, who wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or in some versions, I am the chief of all sinners, Paul said. And it is here that Paul rebukes sin by confessing his own sin and pointing to Jesus as his Savior. So when we rebuke sin, we can confess that we are fellow sinners and we know the one who forgives, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we rebuke sin, we follow the teaching of Jesus when he said, First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to get the speck that is in your brother's eye. Luke six forty-two. It is when we confess our own sins and our own need for a Savior and for forgiveness that we can honestly rebuke the sin of others and proclaim the forgiveness of sins to them in Jesus' name. Now, if you are honest, if I am honest, you will readily admit this, that this rebuking and forgiving is not something that we can do on our own. Amen? Can't do it on our own. It's not natural. Our self-centered, sinful nature seeks to punish instead of forgive. The goal of our rebuke is not loving aid, but conquering pride. We often rebuke someone in order to demonstrate that we are better than they are. When the disciples heard Jesus' teaching, they also recognized that they were not up to the task. When they said to the Lord, increase our faith, their request suggests that they thought a stronger faith would enable them to obey the Lord's teachings. And to that, the Lord replied with an answer that indicates that it's not the size of the faith, but the object of the faith that is important. For the Lord said this, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey. With the image of the tiny mustard seed, Jesus taught, that even the smallest faith accomplishes remarkable things. How? 
Well, that's because it is not the faith in of it itself that accomplishes these things. It's not the faith that accomplishes these things. It is the almighty power of God in whom even the smallest faith believes that accomplishes these things. It is not the greatness of the faith that uproots the plants and plants the tree. It is the power of God that uproots and plants the tree. Thus, when it is God's will to replant trees, he can work through even the smallest faith to command the trees to grow in the seed. It is not our faith that rescues a wayward child. It is not our faith that fixes a troubled relationship. It is not our faith that fixes those things that we are in turmoil about. It is not our faith that rescues someone who we love that may have died without what we knew was a faith that saves them. It is not our faith that does that. It is the faith in the one who has the power. It's his power that does that. The final verse in today's gospel deal with the temptation that can come along when God does great things through our tiny little faith. It is very easy to believe that we deserve some sort of special recognition because God has done such great things in our presence, maybe answered our prayers in the affirmative and after Jesus ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit upon these apostles, they healed the sick, and they drove out demons, and the lame walked, and even the dead lived again, that the devil would use these great things to tempt the apostles into thinking somehow they were great. And at the end of today's gospel, we heard Jesus say, so you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When God does some great work through us, we should not wait around expecting him to applaud. Even when our accomplishments are outstanding, we really deserve no congratulations. We are merely doing our duty. And Jesus gives this teaching to the apostles and to us so that when he does some great work in us or through us, that we will not give in to temptation to take credit for the work to ourselves. Jesus condemned the hypocrites who do their work so that they may be praised by others. His words are chilling when he proclaimed this. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. With these words he taught that they have all the reward that they will get in this life. And that means that there is no reward for them in the next Instead of looking to praise yourself, look to Jesus on the cross. 
It is there that you will see that God has already given you everything. You've been baptized into his death and resurrection. That you no longer require recognition based on the successes he places, that he places in your life. Instead of coveting praise from others, you rest on Jesus' service for you as he took your sin, as he took your guilt, and as he took your death to himself. And he has prepared the eternal clothing of his righteousness for you because the Holy Spirit has placed you in Christ. His humble service is the object of your faith. And he gives his body and his blood to you at the table that he sets for you. And it is in this meal that he gives you forgiveness. He gives you life. He gives you salvation and the strength to go about doing your Christian duty as God's humble servant, that is, loving God and loving your neighbor in the various vocations that he has put you in. It is in Jesus Christ that we already have all things. We have forgiveness. We have salvation. We have eternal life. And that is already yours in him. And you receive all this now by faith, even if that faith is very, very small. And when you leave this world, you will receive it all by sight as you are face to face with Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.